Hey everyone, and welcome back to Phonication, the podcast dedicated to the interconnected webosphere and all the information it offers. I'm your host, Jack, and I'm super excited to be bringing you guys another episode. Today's episode, though, is going to go a little differently. It's going to be a little bit longer, as I'm sure you noticed by the timestamp. It's going to be multi-part even, and that's because of the subject matter. There are so many goddamn cats out there and so many recurring questions about them, and obviously like a lot of misinformation about them that I really wanted to do them justice. Most especially because so many people have pet cats, like there's 600 million cats out there. And also because they get a lot of undeserved hate for having the audacity to be cats. I will be doing the same format for the upcoming dog episode. And yes, by the way, I will absolutely upload pictures of my cat and my dog to the gram. They're the best, and I say that objectively. I hope you guys don't question my integrity and think I would offer bias in regards to how amazing my pets are. Okay, now that the truth has been settled, let's move on to today's episode, which, like I said, is all about the overlords of the internet. Cats. The domestic kind. Felis catus. Which is like, the laziest scientific name. (laughs) Which is fitting, because, you know, cats are super lazy. They sleep 12 to 16 hours a day. (laughs) But let's go back all the way to the beginning, when they were just starting to learn how to be lazy. Our story starts in ancient Egypt. A spaceship full of cat girls descends from outer space to Cairo and they build the pyramids. Meanwhile, they breed with a local population and thus cats appear on earth. But if we follow the Illuminati sanctioned fabricated version of history, the pyramids were built by following simple physics. So they obviously had to come up with an alternate version of cat origins, which I will regale now. As I think most people are aware, there are multiple cat species. You got your lions, your tigers, your panthers, your various wildcat assortments, but originally, no cats were domestic. Like, they were obviously all wild. (laughs) Add a couple thousand years, and suddenly, we coexist sort of peacefully with fun-sized apex predators loudly eating plastic at 3 o'clock in the fucking morning. There's a common saying that appears to hold true concerning cats at least, that humans domesticated dogs, but cats domesticated themselves. And I think that anyone who's ever met a cat before would probably be completely unsurprised by that. I mean, the idea of a cat doing anything it doesn't explicitly want to is incredibly hard to imagine. That personality trait did not evolve out. (laughs) And I sound salty, I know, but it's only because I get no gratitude for saving my dumbass cat's life on a daily basis. Realistically, I can 100% back the idea of not doing things you want to do. Being independent, don't need anybody, it's an admirable quality, even if you don't understand that there's no caloric value in plastic. Although the amount of time he demands my attention and cuddles and kisses while trying to maintain a facade of aloofness is baffling. (laughs) So anyways, self-domestication. Is it a real term? I genuinely don't know, but it's self-explanatory. In a massive contrast to dogs, cats were not locked in cages and taught how to be pets. They saw the benefits to being a house cat and decided having someone wait on you hand and foot was a pretty stellar living situation. It's not 100% clear yet when exactly domestication started, with archeological and molecular evidence giving some differing opinions on the matter. Some people believe 3,500 years ago, some people believe 10,000 years ago, but the point is it was a long freaking time ago. I wasn't alive and there are actually different schools of thought on what qualifies as the beginning of domestication. Cats hung around for humans for quite a few years before eventually deciding to cuddle up with them in bed. But the way it all started was humans figuring out how to farm. And then they started storing their leftovers. And you know who loves leftover crops? Mice. 
You know who loves mice? Cats. I can hear your shock through the radio waves, through time between me recording this and you listening to it. It's that palpable. (laughs) The cat in particular I'm discussing is the African wildcat, Felis sylvestris, which actually looks remarkably similar to the domestic cat. I would absolutely approach one stupidly thinking it was a pet kitty. African wildcats were hanging around the Fertile Crescent, doing the typical wildcat thing, looking for small mammals to hunt. But a lot of those little mice were hanging out way too close to humans. And this puts the African wildcat in a conundrum. Those wildcats, and even the ones today, have a very large flight distance. If they even get the vibes that you're even thinking about going to the same continent as them, they're already running away from you. But if they wanted those delicious mice hanging out in human farms, they'd have to get over their fears and shrink their personal space bubble. So some of them shrunk their flight distance. And then they shrunk it again. And again. Eventually, it got to the point where you could basically be hanging out, tanning in your Egyptian backyard, getting the rays from raw, and a cat would just, you know, comfortably stroll by. I like to imagine they behaved like the modern seagull, just totally comfortable with you being in their space, not tolerating you getting too cocky, and occasionally stealing shit straight out of your hands. (laughs) And the Egyptians had zero whole problem with the arrangement. They didn't train them to kill pests, but they were doing a damn good job of it on their own. And it didn't hurt that they were really fucking cute little predators. Egyptians were obsessed with cats, almost as much as the internet was in 2007. And there's buttloads of evidence about it, but I think people in general kind of know that. But they even have a deity who originally took the form of a lioness, and then eventually a kitty cat. (laughs) Her name is Bastet, or Bast sometimes, in the old form. And she was seen as a goddess of protection. Egyptians also mummified gazillions of cats over the years due to their reverence, starting with Prince Thutmose in 1350 BC. But I am getting ahead of myself. At this point in the story, these cats are beginning the stages of self-domestication. But they're still wild animals. This is not Sir Fluffy Budge refusing to sleep anywhere except directly on top of your face. Well, it seems that Egyptians were just so goddamn enamored with them that they gave in to the absolutely human desire to hang out with the baby kittens and started adopting them. Honestly, in a very similar way that you see modern people taking in baby raccoons and squirrels on YouTube, and they end up being a lot more sociable to humans than the wild versions. Same, same, but on a much larger scale. All the Egyptians were into the cat cult. And I do mean cat cult. I am not remotely exaggerating. Bastet had a hell of a following. So this is where we see the shift from human tolerant wildcats to the domestic house cat. Pet cats were all the fucking rage and obviously became a huge source of economic growth because there was a huge demand for kitties. In hieroglyphs, you can see a lot of familiar scenes with cats playing with humans, being petted on their fluffy butts, and essentially being the cats that we know and love today. This is when they made the true leap into being domesticated. In short, cats walked right up to us and asked to hang out and we said, you're fucking cute, take over my whole life. But despite the difference between wild and domestic seeming so frigging big, there's shockingly little genetic variation between your tabby cat, Felis catus, and the wild cat, Felis sylvestris. They can even interbreed. They look practically identical. The domestic version has slightly smaller canine teeth, a slightly smaller body, a slightly smaller brain, obviously. (laughs) Actually, the most noticeable difference is the fur markings. Think about the types of dotting, stripiness, patches, and 
marbling that you see on cats and dogs that you don't see on lions and tigers. It's called piebald, and there's actually a link between domestication and piebaldness. Super, super short and simplified version of that. There's a mutated gene that affects the movement and growth of pigment cells during an animal's embryonic stage. I don't want to go super in-depth, but if you guys want a full episode on genetic variances in domestication, let me know. And the reason that the domestic cat hasn't changed too drastically from the wild cat is because it didn't really have a need to. Think about how different dogs look compared to wolves. And that's because dogs were selectively bred, initially as working dogs to fulfill purposes. So lines that were suited to the required capability were bred out, like, you know, hunting dogs or herding dogs. But then eventually they were bred for companionship, which is where you see lines of dogs that were bred specifically to be cute and cuddly. That's where we got the dogs like, you know, chihuahuas or shih tzus. Cats don't differ a whole lot amongst breeds because cats weren't really specifically bred in the first place and certainly not in the same way. They were domesticated because we loved them, not because we were utilizing them. Any of the specific breeding that is done has been relatively recently, so it hasn't had a whole lot of time to branch out like with dogs. Another common side effect of domestication is something called neoteny which is the retention of juvenile traits into adulthood. One human equivalent would be like the squeaky high-pitched baby voice. Think Harley Quinn or Sarah Silverman. And I'm only partly kidding. Humans actually have a lot of neotenic features. Yes, we are considered domesticated. But examples of neoteny in domestic cats would be things like extreme playfulness, meowing, which I'll talk about later, and that kneading thing that they do with their paws. So I'm mentioning it now, but keep it in mind for a little bit later. Cats evolved to be eternal kittens. Got it? Good. Now, despite domestic and large cats like lions and tigers both technically being cats, they're obviously still very, very different from each other. Actually, if you look at the evolution tree of cats, you'll notice that domestic cats and lions are at the complete opposite ends of it. The lion that evolved into large cats, Panthera, branched off first 6.4 million years ago, with the lion that eventually turns into a kitty cat only branching off 3.4 million years ago. So they evolved very, very separately from each other. Honestly, evolution works a lot like the telephone game in my opinion. So the end result of two branches, despite having the same starting point, end up insanely different. Like the difference between a lion and a kitty. But what's interesting about that is one thing retained by cats is that they're solitary. There aren't roaming herds of cheetahs, no team projects, individual only. And amongst all the cat species, like cheetahs and ocelots and savannah cats and tigers and saber-tooth and jaguars and bobcats and cougars and whatever else, there are only two whole exceptions to that rule. Lions and domestic cats. Despite being so far away from each other on the tree of life, they're the only cats that have packs. But, to make it more weird, wild cats were not social animals. Ever. They were very solitary and even aggressive to other wildcats. Comparing again to dogs, that is fucking weird. You look at a dog evolution and notice that wolves are already social. We've all heard of wolf packs. That was a non-issue for a social wolf to turn into a social dog. But a cat? A shy, solitary wildcat to turn into a sociable kitty? That is a complete change in their innate behavior. Even semi-wildish feral cats are still fundamentally changed from their still-living wildcat ancestor. I mean, at this point, feral cats will happily form colonies and gather together at feeding areas, whereas wildcats still prefer solitude, 
and avoid humans and other cats. Like, the only time that they socialize with each other is when they're trying to have sex. So, let's explore how the fuck this whole phenomenon happened. Remember how I mentioned Neoteni briefly a couple minutes ago? And how I said we'd get back to it? Well, I wasn't lying. So, cats essentially had to teach themselves how to be social while they were being domesticated. In wild cats, sociability ends once they mature. When they're in a litter full of baby kittens, they're obviously going to be very sociable, but then they grow out of it. So for cats, sociability is a neotenic or juvenile trait. While they're kittens, they have a communication structure built in, comprised of meows, rubbing, rolling, and others. Well, okay, to be fair, the rubbing and rolling are not neotenic, but the meowing is. It's important, I promise. <laughs> so, kittens, including wildcat kittens, use this communication structure in their social lives. But upon growing up and changing into a solitary predator, the adult wildcat no longer needs these behaviors and abandons things like meowing. But they will retain the rubbing and rolling because <laughs> those mean let's have sex. Obviously that's needed for an adult cat. <laughs> but adult domestic cats obviously kept the meowing for fucking anything. Anything they want to communicate is done through fucking meowing at any hour of the day or night Mom, there's a new box on the floor. Mom, I want food. Mom, you've only given me 10 hours of attention today. Mom, the dogs are in my field of view and I'm annoyed. It's <laughs> constant. So, this meowing is something that was useful as a juvenile and remained useful upon maturing because due to their closer proximity to other cats and especially humans, they were in social situations more often than the adult wildcat found themselves in them. They sort of never grew out of needing to be social. So eventually, over time, they kind of just permanently kept those juvenile traits. Most of the communication is used to mean, I don't want to fight. So considering they now had to be around a lot of other cats a lot of the time, it made a lot of sense to keep being able to say that. And then, to take it even further, they adapted some things to mean something else entirely. So the rubbing against people and rolling over that I mentioned, in a wild cat, and also in a domestic cat, it means hey boy, let's fuck, not fight. But in Domestic Cat, it also has a second meaning of like, hey boy, let's be friends, not fight. It's all about context. Your cat is not trying to have sex with you when they rub their heads against you. Another method of communication is purring. It's possible it was originally meant to be like a reassuring thing between mothers and kittens, and it was kept into adulthood to indicate contentment. It's also been proven that vibrations in the same frequency range as a cat's purr promote bone density and bone healing. So it's possible they're also doing it to heal themselves. Or maybe you. I wanna talk about body language while we're on the subject. Because first of all, your odds as a human coming into contact with a domestic cat in your lifetime is quite high. So you should probably know their body language. But also there's a cool fun fact that I'm gonna bring up in a second. A cat with its tail low flicking side to side indicates agitation, alertness, or aggressiveness. That cat is not ready to play, do not go in for belly rubs. A cat who has flopped onto their back and exposed their belly feels secure, trusting, and relaxed. But that also doesn't necessarily mean rub their belly. <laughs> I have fallen prey to that Venus flytrap. A cat who has their tail straight up in the air is confident and receptive to advances. That means go pet that kitty. That kitty wants scritches and you have consent. Which is interesting because that is a body language unique to domestic cats. No other cats do that. Not wild cats, not lions, nothing. And bringing the conversation back around, these are all traits that are only seen in domestic cats and lions. 
Lions also retained those social behaviors of rolling and rubbing and vocalizing, although their vocalizations aren't meows, but how fucking cute would that be? Cheetahs meow, by the way, if you're interested. I saw a cheetah meowing in person once when I was in Kenya, and I cried a little bit. 0% embarrassed about that. But lions, despite being so far away from each other evolutionarily, the wildcats that turned into the domestic cats evolved into being miniature lions with behaviors and dynamics that mimic what you would see if you had a shrink ray and used it on actual lions. Domestic cats even have a hierarchy structure like lions do. Female cats will raise kittens communally, kittens will nurse for multiple mature females, females will help out cats giving birth. It's really fucking cool considered they evolved from an animal that would never do that in a million years. Actually, I guess over a couple thousand years they would do it if they chose the route of self-domestication again. But you know what I mean, I hope. So that sums up how cats came about so successfully. Like I said, 600 million domestic cats worldwide. Compare that to the estimated 20,000 wildcats. And I think the first ones who approached humans all those thousands of years ago can be considered super fucking smart. Cat populations exploded. The ancient Greeks loved them. The Romans loved them. They expanded to the Middle East and Germany and eventually to every single continent in the world. And yes, I am including Antarctica. <laughs> now that we've talked about how we got cats, let's talk about what the hell even are cats. Let's talk about their physical characteristics. I'm not going to go super in-depth here, you guys, because I think everyone has at least seen a picture of a cat. <laughs> so, cats are known for being flexible, to the point of being kind of unbelievable. But of course, there's an explanation for it, and it maybe doesn't involve a pact with the devil. Cats have extra lumbar and thoracic vertebrae, which accounts for their spinal mobility and how they're able to be so wriggly. They also have a free-floating clavicle bone that their forelimbs attach to. And since that clavicle is free-floating, they can use it to be even more flexible and wriggly, namely because it allows them to fit into any space that they can fit their head through. It's why they can do that, but our ass gets stuck when we try. It's also why that saying about a cat always landing on its feet is almost always true, even for cats who don't have a tail, despite the common myth. It's really hard to explain over voice only, but I'll upload something to the Instagram that explains it. And I'll even put a video up when I re-record this episode and put it on YouTube. That's right, your girl is going to start uploading the podcast to YouTube. Camera is in the mail right now. Super pumped about it. <laughs> but that is a conversation for the next mini chode. Back to kitty cats. Another interesting, important physical characteristic of cats is in regards to the concept of terminal velocity. So physics time. Terminal velocity is the maximum velocity or speed that an object reaches as it falls through a medium, generally air. It's what Mythbusters used to prove that a penny dropped from the Empire State Building would not kill someone. Basically, when something is dropped, it will eventually fall faster and faster until it can no longer speed up due to its weight, size, density, air resistance, or drag force. Humans have a fatal terminal velocity of 120 miles an hour. If we're allowed to fall from high enough to reach our max falling speed, the impact with the ground will generally kill us. A cat's terminal velocity, due to their light bone structure, uh, their small size, and their thick fur, is only 60 miles an hour. That is a non-fatal terminal velocity, and why cats can survive so many falls from insane heights. But huge disclaimer here, not all the time. And even when they do, there is a high chance for injury. Please do not take this as permission to throw your cat out of a window. Please don't. You would absolutely 100% be an asshole if you did that. Last physical characteristics. 
cats have an abnormally high rate of polydactyly, which is the science word for having extra toes and fingers. And it most frequently occurs along the northeastern part of North America and in England. And some breeds are actually more predisposed to polydactyly, such as Maine Coons, which explains why my best friend's cat named Teddy, Teepers, Beep, or Beepus, depending on the day's vibes, has extra toes. He's a Maine Coon. I don't have like a definitive answer for you guys as to why polydactyly is so common, but I do have a rumor. Apparently, polydactylous cats were touted by sailors as bringers of good luck, and sailors are hella superstitious. So sailors traveling between America and England had all these polydactylous cats, and they kind of, you know, got into the system. <laughs> In fact, a sea captain named Stanley Dexter once gifted a polydactylous cat to Ernest Hemingway, who immediately fell in love with it, and he named it Snow White. He then became like a crazy cat lady and collected a colony of 50 cats, half of which were polydactylous, and they were all named after famous people. There's actually still a colony that lives there and receives stellar veterinary care, and they are still all named after famous people, and half of them are polydactyls. All right, let's talk about the various senses on your mini apex predator. Sight. Excellent eyesight, best at seeing blue and yellow. Hearing, they have a broad range of hearing covering 10.5 octaves, which is 1.5 more octaves than most humans can hear. They can also detect ultrasound. Taste, shit taste. Their taste receptors have a mutated gene that makes them unable to taste sweet. They also prefer warm food around 100 degrees because it resembles a fresh kill, and often reject colder food because it resembles food that has been dead for a long time. Smell incredible sense of smell. They have a very well-developed olfactory bulb, and their olfactory mucosa has a surface area twice as large as a human's. Also, while we're here, let's talk about catnip and why cats love it. Catnip reactions are hereditary and affect 70 to 80% of all adult cats. It affects them for around 10 minutes, after which they're immune to its effects for about 30 minutes. It doesn't affect kittens at all, only cats that have reached sexual maturity and I think you'll understand why in a moment. <laughs> a cat's common reactions to catnip is to jump, roll around, rub its head on it, and doesn't that sound like something I was talking about earlier? Like, maybe the social indications for I'm trying to have sex with you. <laughs> That's because when a cat smells catnip, one of the volatile oils in it, called nepotilactin, enters the nasal tissue. Obviously, that's called smelling. <laughs> It then binds to the protein receptors that stimulate some of their sensory neurons. They provoke a response that does a chain reaction, lighting up several regions in the brain. Namely, the amygdala, which is responsible for emotional responses, and the hypothalamus, which is basically brain HQ. This ends up creating a response in the pituitary gland, which manages to accidentally get translated as sex pheromones. Basically, your cat smells the catnip and thinks, Oh fuck, this plant smells exactly like a female in heat. Oh fuck. <laughs> it's like kind of the same thing as some dude sniffing underwear and getting off on it. <laughs> so your cat is not actually getting high like many people think. They're just really, really horny. But speaking of horny, that's where we're going to start the next episode on cats coming next week. And again, I know this is long, but I really hope you're enjoying it and learning a lot about cats and biology. Next week, I'm going to be talking all about feline fornication the path that led to their domination of the internet, and debunking some myths. Namely, whether or not your cat actually feels love. So don't forget to tune in next hum day to learn all about it. In the meantime, if you're enjoying this podcast, please, please leave a review on iTunes. It helps out a buttload. If you really enjoy it, 
please consider subscribing to the Patreon. I still have t-shirts, so if you subscribe, free t-shirt for you. See you next week. Bye.